1: You know, the battle for your mind, it's a real thing, not just because I say so, but as you will hear in the course of today's show, there's a lot that we're expected to believe. And when I say things we're expected to believe, I mean things that you can clearly see if you're looking are nothing but out and out lies. But the people in power say, no, 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 that's the that's the story and we're going to stick to it and we're supposed to defer to them and their expertise as opposed to what we are able to observe and deduce On our own. It's really quite exhilarating and it's fun to be a wrong thinker and I'm glad you're along. So let's uh, let's dive right in. First of all, thanks to my sponsors who make this program possible. I really can't tell you how much I appreciate them underwriting the efforts that I make every single day to find and disseminate the best, most credible, least politicized information that I can. Not an easy thing in today's environment, but uh, they are the ones who keep the wolf away from my door and allow me to focus on what uh, what my heart really wants to be doing, and that is seeking truth and speaking truth. So to uh, Sewing and Quilting Center, HSL Ammo, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, lifesavingfood.com, and org, a great big thank you. I couldn't do it without you. And I'm asking you, my listener, please, if you have need of the product or service that these sponsors offer, do business with them or refer someone to them, or better still, just you know send them a thank you note, tell them hey, you're helping uh, provide something that uh, that I find of value. well, I'm going to start with something that's that is controversial but is only going to become more controversial over about the next week because the uh, upcoming anniversary of January sixth is about a week out and I can say this with absolute certainty. Like the anniversary of 9-11, which was a pretty big day after all, there is going to be a lot of emoting and a lot of posturing, primarily by politicians and perhaps some within the media, who are going to wallow in the supposed victimhood of all the terrible things those Trump people did, you know, in Washington, D.C. And at the same time, they're going to be demanding more power and more control over the rest of us. As if they haven't been flexing on us for the last couple of years, courtesy of a little uh, pandemic. But what I'm going to ask you to consider is maybe, just maybe, we're not being told the full story of what happened. So in today's show notes, if you click on it, you will find a link to a story published back uh, on October 25th of this year. By Revolver News, revolver.news, I should say. And this is—it's so comprehensive. There is no possible way that I could even begin to work, even in two hours. If I just went steady, took no breaks for commercials, I could go for more than two hours on the information that they provide. But in particular, what I want you to look at is the story about Ray Epps, E P P S, Ray Epps, the federal, prote- the federally protected provocateur, who appears to have led the very first attack on the U.S. Capitol. Now, you know, calling it an attack, I don't know. Nobody was armed, but there were definitely some people there who knew what they were doing, had tools to break in and get into the Capitol, and this Ray Epps figure was right there at the very head of it. In fact, the night before, he was telling people, we're going to have to go to the Capitol, we're going to have to get inside the Capitol, and people at that time actually called him out you can hear people when he says, we got to go to the Capitol and get in the Capitol. And people are like, whoa, no, 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 no. And then the chant started from the crowd, Fed, 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 Fed. <laughs> in the, in the uh, common parlance, he was glowing. The guy was, was so much of a uh, supposed Fed. And I, think, I still think he probably was. What makes this interesting is back in October, Representative Thomas Massey from Kentucky questioned Attorney General Merrick Garland about Ray Epps. Particularly, he questioned him about uh, whether there were federal agents present on January 6th and whether those federal agents agitated to go into the Capitol. And Attorney General Garland refused to answer. In fact, he got very nervous, stammering. I, I, I can't, that's a, a breach of, 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 of law. I, I can't comment on, on an ongoing investigation. It really rattled him. But in this article, you will see there's plenty of video clips showing this Ray Epps instructing protesters to enter the Capitol building on the night of January 5th and then later shepherding crowds toward the Capitol on January 6th. Now, here's the crazy thing about this. Actually, let me first, first, let me, let me give you the exact transcript here. This is, this is Representative Massey questioning Attorney General Garland. Representative Massey Questioning Garland, under oath, says, as far as we can determine, the individual who was saying he'll probably go to jail, he'll probably be arrested, but they need to go to the Capitol the next day, is then directing people into the Capitol the next day, is then the next day directing people to the Capitol. And as far as we can find, you said this is one of the most sweeping in history. Have you seen that video or those frames from that video? Here's Attorney General Garland's response. So, as I said at the outset, one of the norms of the Justice Department is to not comment on pending investigations, particularly not to comment on particular scenes or particular individuals. Representative Massey tries again. I was hoping today to give you an opportunity to put to rest the concerns that people have that there were federal agents or assets of the federal government present on January 5th and January 6th. Can you tell us, without talking about particular incidents or particular videos, how many agents or assets of the federal government were present on January 6th, whether they agitated to go into the Capitol, and if any of them did? Here's Attorney General Garland uh, looking down and away. So I'm not going to violate this norm of, uh, of, 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 of the rule of law. I'm not going to comment on an investigation that's ongoing. Now, the article here says there's a good reason why Attorney General Garland ran from Massey's question faster than he could find words. Why he couldn't even keep eye contact as he was dodging Massey's gaze. And the reason is, after months of research, Revolver's investigative reporting team can now reveal that Ray Epps appears to be among the primary orchestrators of the very first breach of the Capitol's police barricades at 12.50 p.m. on January 6th. Now, that's while Trump was still speaking. Epps appears to have led the breach team that committed the very first illegal acts on that fateful day. And what's more, Epps and his breach team did all their dirty work with 20 minutes still remaining in President Trump's National Mall speech. And with the vast majority of Trump's supporters still 30 minutes away from the Capitol. Secondly... Revolver also determined, and they prove in their article, that the FBI stealthily removed Ray Epps from its Capital Violence Most Wanted list back on July 1st of this year. Just one day after Revolver exposed the inexplicable and puzzlesome FBI protection of known Epps' associate and Oath Keepers leader, Stuart Rhodes. July 1st was also just one day after separate New York Times report that amplified a glaring, falsifiable lie about Epps' role, ...in the events of January 6th. And finally... ...Epps appears to have worked alongside several individuals... ...many of them suspiciously, unindicted... ...to carry out a breach of the police barricades... ...that induced a subsequent flood of unsuspecting MAGA protesters... ...to unwittingly trespass on capital restricted grounds... ...and place themselves in legal jeopardy. Now, I can hear the wheels turning in some people's heads... ...Brian, are you asking us to believe that the federal government may have been behind or had a hand in instigating some of the unrest that took place on January 6th? Yes, indeed. In fact, I'm not just suggesting it. I'm saying if you read this article, and it's it's a very lengthy, very, very well-documented article from Revolver.News, I don't know how you could come to any other conclusion. So now it leaves us with a question. Why would they do something like that? Well, gee, I don't know. I don't know. You ever uh, you ever heard of Operation Northwoods? Just out of curiosity. I'm not going to tell you much about that other than you ought to Google it and just have a look and see if there's any evidence that at any time agencies within the, the federal government, particularly those charged with national security, would ever create a monster or create a situation that they could then ride to the rescue and save us from. Because it sure appears that's exactly what happened. And all I'm asking you to do is keep an open mind, especially as you hear the rhetoric ramped up by the media and by members of the political class over the next week or so, as they wallow in the victimhood of all oh, the terrible things that were done, the fear that we felt on, on January 6th. It was the worst thing since Pearl Harbor. It was so bad. Crocodile tears. They're just, this is nothing but uh, melodrama for the sake of you've got to give us more money and more power over you. Take a look at the article, it's linked in the show notes at thebrienhideshow.com. And just keep in mind, the media, the mass media, is certainly not telling us the rest of the story.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. Let's take a moment here and talk about uh, lifesavingfood.com. Yep, time to talk about food storage. Now there are a lot of reasons why a person may want to consider, you know, having some stores of food laid away just in case. I'm not even going to say a rainy day, but more like what if there was unrest? Just hypothetically, what if there was a precarious political situation? What if the economy was teetering on the brink of something ugly? What if your money simply buys less and less with each passing day? You know, like if, hypothetically, inflation was a factor. Now, keep in mind, I'm not trying to scare you. But everything that I've just mentioned here is, it's a reality. This is part of the time that we live in. And no, none of us would choose to live in such interesting times, but here we are. Would it not make sense to do something to shore up your position not for doomsday, but just for the sake of continuing life as you know it, for the sake of being able to provide for you and yours, and most importantly, for not putting yourself in the position where you are at the mercy of either a stranger's kindness or some government official telling us you're going to do this or else. People who are self-reliant have the option of saying, no, (laughs) I'm not going to do that. So please visit my sponsor lifesavingfood.com, take advantage of the discount that they offer, 15% discount for my listeners, plus no sales tax and free delivery. I think you'll find something that will fit with your food storage plan, even if you're just getting started. A lot of great information. Just follow the link in today's show notes, lifesavingfood.com. You know, some people get uncomfortable when you start to show the similarities between, say, religious dogma. And science is a belief system rather than a method. Rob Nielsen does a great job in an article I just picked up off of everything-voluntary.com of showing how some religious figures and scientists eventually seem to become mascots for the cult of authority. So be warned, this this may bump up against the limits of some people's you know mental universe. My goal here is not to make you mad, it's not to make you fearful, but... This is definitely something worth considering. Rob has a very solid take on things. He says the relationship between the teachings of Christ and many so-called Christian religions, historically and vaguely called Christianity, is similar to the relationship between the scientific method and science as a belief system. Scientism would be another word. To back this up, he quotes from the New Testament, Mark chapter 6, verses 6-9. through nine. Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Now, in both cases, Rob Nielsen says, a label is used to make a linguistic association with true principles, both in the case of religion and in the case of scientism. But the core of what people claim as their foundation is far from their understanding and intent, so they organize and act based on appealing to their own traditions and authority instead. So in other words, labels like Christian and science become mere brands that they use to manage perceptions and to promote their own agendas. Now here's the kicker. If you disagree with their cult of authority, you are accused of rejecting the namesake of their brand. So to question a person in a position of religious authority is treated as a rejection of God. Oh boy, have we seen this a lot lately. To question a person of in a position of politically scientific authority is to reject science itself. And Rob includes in his article, first of all, here's a picture of Cardinal Sarto who became Pope Pius X. The Pope represents Jesus Christ himself. And then right below it is a picture of Anthony Fauci. The headline, I am the science. I represent science. That sounds familiar, right? So Rob Nielsen is saying, look, whether whether or not there are good reasons to doubt them or other authorities who disagree with them is brushed aside. They decide what the messaging of the brand will be. You agree with and obey the cult's chosen, or you are a heretic. Truth be damned. And sooner or later, authorities insist that heretics must be shunned, exiled, or killed. If people listen to heretics, they may stop giving attention and money to the cult, you see. Now, some people may think that's, that's pretty loaded language. And that's, I mean, I guess if it challenges your belief system, yeah, that would, that would be kind of uh, hard to take. But I'm not insisting you believe it, okay? I'm just asking you to consider it. That's different than actually just, you know, mindlessly nodding, okay, all right, whatever you say, Brian. I hearken back to uh, Aristotle who said, you know, the mark of an educated mind is the ability to entertain a thought without accepting it. But I think we've actually seen that threshold crossed where science, and by that I mean scientism, that, uh, that dogma-like belief in the, in the system has taken on religious overtones. I mean, let's face it. if There are people who ch- chant the mantra, you know, follow the science, follow the science. And they certainly have their doctrines, their dogma, they proselytize with the help of the media and with politicians, and they are very, very jealous and very unkind towards those who question what they say is the absolute, you know, universal truth. In a little bit different time and place, I think they long ago would have been burning, you know, the the heretics at the stake, starting with anybody who questions the vaccines. So my goal here is not to get you all riled up and angry at those people who are, you know, scientific dogmatists. It's not to get you riled up at the people who are, you know, religious dogmatists either. My goal here is to encourage you to be the kind of person who puts enough effort into their thinking that you don't become like either one of those. And here's the sad part. I think there are a lot of very well-intended people who get caught up in this. They really believe, no, 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 this is righteousness. You know, in the the case of the religious, and I'm sorry, this is going to make some people uncomfortable, but I'm going to go here for a moment. Within my church, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There is a fairly strong contingent of people who believe, if you have not gone out and got your vaccination because the church's first presidency released a statement back in, when was it, September saying, you know, we encourage people to get these vaccines, they're safe and effective, to follow the counsel of wise government experts and health experts and so forth. If you haven't done that, you are essentially seen as someone who is rejecting God. You are in a state of apostasy. That's kind of a dangerous place to go. And, of course, as far as the science thing goes, you know, Anthony Fauci says it, we've got to do it. We can already see what's happening there. I mean, I was a little bit encouraged at the beginning of this week when President Biden came right out and told the governors of the states that he was on a conference call with, there is no federal solution to the coronavirus, to COVID. That's going to have to be solved at the state level. I don't think the states have the power to do it either, but, you know, at least he's acknowledging the federal government, all the king's horses, all the king's men can't do it. But at the same time, he just indicated the other day that, well, if Anthony Fauci tells me, if, you know, the man who embodies science tells me we need to impose a vaccine mandate for anybody wishing to fly on an airplane or to travel, you know, on an airline, then we're going to implement it. I guess, you know, we know whose ring he's kissing, so to speak. Don't let yourself be duped. You're free to hold whatever opinions you want to hold. I'm just asking you, think as clearly and independently as you can and don't get caught up in the fervor. Otherwise, it really does become kind of cult-like.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: And just like that, we are back. Thank you once again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Look, I'm under no illusion that, uh, you know, this is going to be the biggest audience ever. I'm going to take the world by storm and everybody's going to be happy about what I'm talking about. Nope. I came to the understanding a long time ago that there's, there's a certain kind of person who actually is stubborn enough and committed enough to want to know what the truth is, that they're willing to look around and perhaps take a path less trodden, you know, than, than uh, what others are offering. And uh, there's a lot of great voices out there. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I am the one voice that you can trust. But I also understand that the message that I'm sharing, it's not for everybody. And it's okay if that's not you. I have no ill will towards you. You don't need to go away and leave me alone, you heretic. No such thing. See, I believe all of us are just trying to slog our way out of the swamp of misinformation, as Paul Rosenberg puts it. We're all, at various, we're, we're all at various places in that journey. Some are further along. I'm so thankful for the ones who are ahead of me on that trail and who've thoughtfully left markers for me to follow or clues for me to follow. This may be a better way. I'm just trying to do the same thing for those who, likewise, are trying to sort it all out. And I'm okay if my audience is a very small audience, which it probably is, I have no way of knowing exactly. I really don't. I'm okay with that because I'm confident that the people who have found this message and who resonate with this message, those are my people. Those are, those are people who care enough about truth. They're willing to experience the discomfort of setting aside you know, some of their prevailing beliefs or altering you know, their understanding of the world when they are introduced with new truth. And I try to follow this same pattern myself. I'm not the source of all this truth. I just happen to have a platform and a desire to share it as widely as I can. And I would also add, don't be discouraged if you feel like, gosh, we're so much in the minority. That's true. We probably are. I would encourage you, if you have the time, find a copy of Albert J. Knox's uh, essay, Isaiah's Job. Learn about what the remnant was. That's who Isaiah was sent to speak to. I mean, he could speak to the masses. Anybody could listen. But his message really was a message of truth and encouragement for the remnant. The remnant are those who will rebuild after the masses have run everything into the ground. Look around us today. There's a lot of folks who, uh, you know, out of fear or just out of a desire not to stand out, you know, they're they're following along with the masses. You know, I could say lemming-like, but some would think, well, you're just insulting them. But what I'm saying is it's much safer to run with the herd. You probably already recognize that. So thank you for being willing to step out of the herd and just consider if maybe there's something of value to be found in in one of these different voices, like mine or others who are trying to get this message out. All right, shifting gears. Grew up watching The Karate Kid. I believe it came out uh, not long after I graduated high school. And for those of us who grew up with the original Karate Kid franchise, the current TV reboot is kind of a pleasant surprise. I don't know if you've watched Cobra Kai, but it's very well done. And and you actually come away with with kind of a a different respect for the characters. I mean, in some ways, Karate Kid, especially the original movie, was uh, almost a little cartoonish. Okay, the the Johnny was such a bad guy, and it was so clear he was a bad guy. And Daniel, of course, you know the the uh, protagonist, he was just you know a naive but uh, but well meaning hero. And there's some some nuance that's missing from that original Cobra Kai, though. Actually, has some very valuable lessons. Got a great article here from John Miltimore about how Cobra Kai can teach a generation marinated in victimhood and safety some very valuable lessons. And a lot of it has to do with the radical message of individualism and self-reliance. John Miltimore says, Cobra Kai is back. Season four begins, well, today, actually. And he says, my family will be watching what is perhaps the most surprising hit in a decade and our personal favorite. Now, the Karate Kid spin off had flop written all over it. After several sequels and reboots, the franchise felt spent. Moreover, it was launched as part of YouTube's ill fated plan to compete with Amazon and Netflix in original content production. Nevertheless, Cobra Kai has proven a smash. After being acquired by Netflix in June of 2020, the show dominated the Nielsen streaming charts, quickly racking up more than 2 billion streaming minutes. The acquisition, as Forbes put it, turned Cobra Kai from an obscure hit into the number one show in America. Now, he says the show works for several reasons and has struck a chord with young people. He goes, my kids can't get enough of it. Largely by running against postmodern sacred cows and embracing some radical ideas like self-ownership, personal responsibility, and individualism, as well as some 1980s-style badassery. Now, Cobra Kai does all of this with humor and a twist. The themes of individualism and self-improvement are channeled not through a wise Miyagi-like sensei, but through ace-degenerate Johnny Lawrence, the villain of Karate Kid, who famously got his face kicked in in the fifth act. So, Lawrence, played by William Zabka, is not a likely protagonist. If there was a Mount Rushmore of 80s pop villains, Johnny Lawrence would be on it, wedged somewhere between Ed Rooney, Judge Smales, and Biff Tannen. In the original Karate Kid, Johnny was the seemingly privileged bully who tormented the working-class new kid from New Jersey, propelling Daniel LaRusso's transformation from punching bag to karate student to all-valley champion. See, LaRusso takes the title from Johnny, the defending champion. Whoops, sorry for the spoiler. In Cobra Kai, though, things have changed. Johnny's a down-on-his-luck, beer-swilling handyman who watches American Eagle alone in his grimy apartment. And from his red Firebird, he sees billboards of his old enemy's car dealerships, LaRusso Motors, popping up like acne across the valley. He's divorced, estranged from his son, and gets arrested in the very first episode. His life changes, however, when a young man in his building named Miguel asks for help to deal with some school bullies. Sound familiar? Eventually, Johnny agrees to train Miguel. But Johnny's no Mr. Miyagi. He's rude, a walking embodiment of toxic masculinity and kind of a bigot. He calls Miguel Menudo and makes a crack about more immigrants, genderizes, and occasionally uses a derogatory word that refers to a female body part. At one point, he's asked why he won't let females into Cobra Kai. Same reason there aren't women in the army. Doesn't make sense. Johnny says, don't give me this sexist bull crud. All right, I'm just saying women aren't meant to fight. They have tiny hollow bones. Now, Johnny quickly relents about letting girls into Cobra Kai, however, and it's just one step on his path to growth. And it's this growth that makes the show so interesting. Johnny's foibles would be horrifying to the modern audiences if they weren't balanced against the larger arc of the story, Johnny's transformation from degenerate into a true sensei. Viewers see that Cobra Kai, the dojo that tormented Daniel LaRusso and Karate Kid, isn't all bad. Under Johnny's tutelage, a crop of misfit students learn something important, and that is, they don't have to be victims. I'm going to teach you the style of karate that was taught to me, a method of fighting your <clears throat> generation desperately needs, Johnny says. You'll build strength, you'll learn discipline, and when the time is right, you'll strike back. Now, the message is a bit controversial, controversial rather but the writers effectively show it's not just physical strength being taught. Johnny teaches his students they have power and agency. One student, Eli, is mercilessly mocked at school for having a cleft palate. Even Johnny mocks Eli, calling him lip. He refers to other students as crater face and nose ring. Now, if the storyline ended there, we'd see Johnny as little more than a cruel bully... who hasn't changed at all since Daniel LaRusso kicked his face in... at the All-Valley Championship 30-plus years earlier. Instead, however, after briefly quitting Cobra Kai under Johnny's abuse... Eli comes back changed in ways that are both good and bad. This is just one of the many examples of Johnny showing his students they have the power to shape their own destinies if they can find their inner strength, courage, and identity. And just as importantly, we see how this philosophy is transformational transformational rather in Johnny's own growth. Now, the moral here is take control of your life. And John Miltimore says, look, undoubtedly, some will find Johnny's antics appalling, Others will find them funny. But what's important is that Cobra Kai essentially is offering a Jordan Peterson philosophy for living. Use your power and agency as an individual to take control of your life. Johnny doesn't stay a down-on-his-luck Coors-swilling fix-it man who watches American Eagle alone and is mistaken for a homeless dude. After getting fired, he cleans up his life. He starts a dojo. He takes on Miguel as a student. He drinks less. He learns to teach his students valuable lessons and not demean them. He cleans his apartment. Now, that last item may sound meaningless, but it's not. It fits right into Peterson's philosophy of self-ownership as the path to personal growth. John Miltmore says, for generations who've grown up in what uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff call the culture of safetyism and victimhood, Cobra Kai may be the tonic that they need to show that true strength and growth is achieved not by fixing society or appealing to authority to resolve conflict. It's realized by changing yourself. Hey, maybe you got something to do over the weekend, huh? Get caught up on uh, all four seasons of Cobra Kai. <laughs> we'll be back in just a moment. This is
0: is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a special shout-out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. They have been... One of my finest and first sponsors and have actually led the way for other sponsors to come on board here but uh, most of all I want you to know about them because if you are relocating or for that matter just in the great state of Utah and uh, you need to uh, either purchase a, a home or maybe refinance your existing mortgage from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, you need to count on the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. She has the experience, the stability and better better than that the clout to help you get the loan you need without delay, right? Time is of the essence. Homes don't stay on the market. Once they hit, people snap them up quickly. If you want to be in the running, you got to have your financing squared away. Count on the experience and insight of the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, NMLS ID 715386. Patriot Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Give her a call at 435-703-4522. Her office is at 619 South Bluff Street, And there is an email link in my show notes if you want to contact her directly. Well, the light's coming on for a lot of folks, and that includes people who previously have been pretty hardcore lockdowners. And the light is simply this. It's not like you guys were right and we were all wrong. But they're coming to the realization that no amount of authoritarianism will beat a virus Now, even so, the power seekers seem like they're very desperate to hang on to their dwindling power. James Bovard has an excellent article in the New York Post about how an air travel vax mandate would do no more to vanquish COVID. Bovard writes, President Joe Biden said Tuesday he will issue an edict requiring vaccines for domestic travel if his scientific advisors recommend it. Tony Fauci, Biden's chief medical advisor, has been yapping in favor of such a mandate in recent days calling it another incentive to get more people vaccinated. But requiring Vax passports for domestic travel would devastate airlines and the tourism business while doing nothing to vanquish COVID. Bovard says with soaring COVID case numbers, Biden is under pressure to make some dramatic gesture to prove he is in charge. Senator Diane Feinstein is spearheading a congressional push for a Vax mandate for air travel, which she labels a necessary and long-overdue step toward ensuring all Americans feel safe and confident while traveling. Now, the feds previously claimed that masking on flights was sufficient to protect travelers, but the Zoom class is terrified. Now they're demanding a comforting placebo. Effectively adding tens of millions of names to the no-fly list would also satisfy the blue state lust to punish Americans who failed to comply with the latest commands from Washington. He says imposing a vax mandate for air travel could be the opening opening step for far greater restrictions on Americans freedom of movement. The Associated Press reported in August that the Biden administration is considering mandating vaccines for interstate travel, but is delaying any such decree until Americans are ready for the strong arming from the federal government. Now, restricting interstate travel across the board would be among the most intrusive federal policies since payroll tax withholding. Enforcing such a policy would require the creation of COVID patrols, akin to pre-Civil War slave patrols waiting to chase down anyone who crosses state lines without proper papers. A Biden vax mandate for domestic travel would be built on the rubble of his prior disastrous mandates. Bovard says after Biden dictated that all healthcare care workers must be fully vaxed, hospitals responded by firing thousands of nurses who refused to get injected. Many of these nurses had natural immunity after surviving COVID infections. That spurred shortages of critical personnel at hospitals. So Biden sent in more than a thousand U.S. military personnel to assist hospitals. That failed to solve the problem. So the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention just revised its guidelines to permit employers to rely on asymptomatic COVID positive employees previously banned from their premises. According to Biden policymakers, it's better for hospital patients to be treated by COVID-positive nurses whose COVID vaccines failed to safeguard them from the virus than by unvaccinated nurses untainted by COVID. Vaccination status has gone from being a proxy for health to being a substitute for sane health care policy. Mandates have curbed almost everything except COVID-19 cases, Yahoo editor Javier David quipped. Mayor Bill de Blasio dictated that all private employees must be vaxxed, and New York City has one of the uh, the nation's most restrictive COVID vaccine passport regimes. But CNBC labeled the Big Apple the epicenter of Omicron infections, and 2% of Manhattan residents contracted COVID in the past week. So righteous political rhetoric will do nothing to prevent far more COVID cases here in the coming weeks. Why would anyone have faith in a new Biden mandate? Jim Bovard asks. In his January 20th inaugural address, Biden Biden vowed to defeat the virus. But COVID cases are setting new records each day. In July, Biden promised you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. By the way, there are links, just in case you think he's making this up. Bovard has linked in his article to where exactly Biden said this. So, or... Biden promises you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. Well, that pledge collapsed in a surge of millions of COVID infections among the vaxxed, which administration spinmeisters tried to dismiss as breakthrough cases. Biden said last week, almost everyone who's died from COVID-19 has been unvaccinated. But the fully vaccinated account for roughly 30 percent of COVID fatalities in Illinois, 25 percent in Oregon, up to 50 percent in Vermont. Though Biden belatedly admitted this week that there is no federal solution to COVID, administration lawyers continue fighting vociferously for his vax mandates in federal courts. Doesn't that make you wonder why? Why would they do that? Unless this is more about power and less about protecting the public. James Bovard says, according to die-hard COVID warriors and Biden supporters, the latest surge of COVID cases proves that the president needs more power. Effectively banning tens of millions of Americans from air travel would endear the president to his triple backed supporters, but another demolition of freedom would do nothing to end the most politically exploited pandemic in American history. Got a link to his article. It's there in the show notes and uh, there you know there's times where I feel very optimistic like you know what. This thing may just settle back down, and the people who caused all of this destruction, the people who tried to garner so much power over everybody else, you know, I'm not necessarily suggesting they ought to be clapped in irons, although, you know, you look at some of the damage done, maybe that wouldn't be such a bad idea, or at least, you know, a, a series of trials comparable to the Nuremberg trials. However, you think they could at least hang their heads in shame for having been so desperately wrong? ...about so many things. But I don't see that. I don't see that coming from the political class. And I'm not just talking about the people of Washington, D.C. I see that coming from state governors and representatives. I see it coming from mayors and other unappointed health officials. Maybe they recognize, you know, that there's there's risk to them. Maybe they feel like, well, I'm, you know, what if I'm civilly liable? What if I could be sued into, uh, you know, poverty? Maybe they're worried that they're facing criminal liabilities. And in some cases, I think maybe they should. Former Governor Cuomo of New York ordering COVID-positive patients into nursing homes where comorbidities and, and vulnerability is at its very highest. It's not an exaggeration to point out. Tens of thousands of individuals died because of his order. So, yeah, I think there ought to be some accountability more than anything, though. What I would be happiest to see is a sufficient number of the American people waking up and realizing they have been played like a fiddle at a barn dance. And I know that's hard. That's Look, admitting you've been duped is harder than admitting that you were wrong. Because I guess it it, it makes some people feel like, well, gee, people are going to think I'm stupid. They're going to think if I had a brain, I'd be outside playing with it. I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, if, if you've done something wrong, you do have a duty to try to fix it. That starts with the mea culpa. That starts with an acknowledgment. Okay, I was wrong. There have been some people who have come to this conclusion. Very, very, you know, small numbers. But there are some lockdowners who have said, you know what? I just realized none of this has worked. All those promises about why I went and got the vaccine and how it was going to be the key to getting my life back, I'm still told. You have to present papers. You're not fully vaccinated. You haven't had your third jab or fourth jab or fifth jab. All I know is the people who thus far have chosen not to get the vaccine probably are feeling pretty good about that decision right now. Yeah, there's risk. You better believe it. There's risk out there that you're going to get, you know, COVID. If you haven't had it already. I'd rather have my freedom and face that risk than lose my freedom and still face that risk. This
0: is the Brian Hyde show.
1: Look, I'm not solving the world's problems here, but I am doing my best to uh, offer a take that gives you some light, some understanding, and hopefully some encouragement that all is not lost. I mean, things are pretty crazy, but uh, there are things you and I can do, starting with ourselves and fixing ourselves, that will make a world of difference, not only to us, but to everybody around us. So, thank you for being part of our growing audience of Wrong Thinkers. Got some great sponsors who make this show possible, including... Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. This is a business started back in 1984 by Ken Harker. It's changed owners just twice in that time. The current owners are Teresa and Eric Alsop. Ken Harker, by the way, is still there, still fixing sewing machines and embroidery machines and so forth. They offer brother sewing and embroidery machines, baby lock sergers, handy quilter, long arm quilting machines. If this sounds, you know, like, uh, a foreign language to you, well, you know, this is, this is how other people feel when mechanics are talking about the upgrades they've been putting in their high-performance sports cars or motorcycles. But trust me when I tell you that sewing is a legit pastime. It's a legit skill set. And if you are looking for the very best machines as well as the service to keep them going, Sewing and Quilting Center at St. George, Utah is the place you should go. If you're looking to to learn embroidery or computerized quilting or how to use your sewing machine to its highest possible use, they can train you to do so. And, of course, they sell fabric and superior thread and cuddle material. It's all there in one place. Stop by and see them at 779 South Bluff Street. You can go to their website, sewingquiltingcenter.com. But above all, know that they are one of the great sponsors making the show possible on a daily basis. So I've seen a real resurgence, at least within my own family, of an interest in family history and particularly an appreciation of the people who came before us. I've been watching my Aunt Janet over the last roughly a little over a year now. Every single day she is posting something on Facebook, which is another story or another example of something from family history. Now it takes her two or three hours a day to research this. But she's done it. And she's compiled a very comprehensive family history of actually two or three different parts of her family. And since I have a son who's kind of our family historian and very into, you know, knowing who came before, I actually bought a copy of this book that she just had put together and gave it to my son and told him, I want you to be the record keeper. I want you to make sure that uh, you're well-versed on our family history. He already is. In fact, if I can just be so bold, he's the reason I was able to connect with my biological parents. It started with his interest in who are the people who came before us. What do we know about where we came from? But the crazy thing is, right now, there's a very strong movement, at least through intellectual and political and academic circles, to condemn everything that came before us and to demonize the past and everybody who was there. They were all wrong. They were all stupid. They were evil. They were superstitious. And we have to reject it. Why? Well, because there's a better way. Oh, and hey, look, there's a picture of Karl Marx. Gee, I wonder if he has something to do with that better way they're pushing. But nonetheless, there's a lot of ingratitude for the people who came before us. And that's wrong. Victor Davis Hanson, writing for AmericanGreatness.com, has an article about the ungracious and their demonization of the past. He says, never in history has such a mediocre but self-important and ungracious generation owed so much yet expressed so little gratitude to its now dead forebears. He says, the last two years have seen an unprecedented escalation in a decades-long war on the American past. But there are lots of logical flaws in attacking prior generations in U.S. history. Critics assume their own moral, their own judgmental generation is morally superior to those of the past. So they use their own standards to condemn the mute dead who supposedly don't measure up to them. Yet 21st century critics rarely acknowledge their own present influence and or affluence rather and leisure owe much to history's prior generations whose toil helped create their current comfort. And what may future scolds say of the modern generation that saw over 60 million abortions since Roe v. Wade, even as fetal viability outside the womb continued to progress to ever-earlier ages? What will our grandchildren say of us who dumped on them over $30 trillion in national debt, much of it as borrowing for entitlements for ourselves? What sort of society snoozes as record numbers of murders continue in 12 of its major cities? What is so civilized about defunding the police and demics smash-and-grab thefts and carjackings? Was our media more responsible, professional, and learned in 1965 or 2021? Did Hollywood make more sophisticated and enjoyable films in 1954 or 2021? Was there less or more sportsmanship among professional athletes in 1990 or 2021? Was it actually moral to discard the content of our character and equal opportunity principles of the prior civil rights movement of 60 years ago? Are there replacement fixations on the color of our skin and equality of result superior? Victor Davis Hanson asked, would America have won World War II with the current labor participation rate of only 6 in 10 Americans working? Would our generation have brought all American troops home and quit World War I? in fear of the deadly 1918 Spanish flu pandemic? Are we proud that most standardized tests of student knowledge and achievement continue to decline, despite record investments in education? Do we ever pause to consider that we enjoy our modern standard of living and security because we were once a meritocracy that quit judging our workforce by tribal affinities and ancient prejudices? I mean, these are good questions. Victor Davis Hanson says, our generation talks of infrastructure nonstop. When was the last time it built anything comparable to Hoover Dam or the interstate highway system or the California water project, much less sent a man back to the moon or beyond? If prior generations were so toxic, why do we continue to take for granted the moral and material world they bequeathed to us from the Constitution and the Bill of Rights to our airports, freeways and power plants? Did we ever defeat anything comparable to the Axis powers or Soviet communism? He says we know the symptoms of the current epidemic of hating the past. One is Orwellian renaming and statue toppling historical revision often responds to puritanical mob frenzies rather than to democratic discussion and voters and uh, votes rather of relevant elected officials. Where's the pantheon of woke heroes who'll replace the toppled or defaced Thomas Jefferson and Teddy Roosevelt? Whose moral and achieve, whose morality rather and achievement should instead be immortalized? Were the public and private lives of che Guevara, Angela Davis, Malcolm X, Margaret Sanger, and Franklin D. Roosevelt without sin? Racial fixations tend predictably in one direction. In good Confederate fashion we lump all individuals who look alike into inexact collectives of white, black, or brown, often to stereotype the supposed evils of so called white supremacy. But he says, if we go down that tribalist and simplistic road of caricatured oppressors and oppressed, will future generations tally up each group's merits and demerits to adjudicate the roles of millions of individuals in making America better or worse? What standard would they use to judge our ignorant world of racial stereotyping, proportional representation in Nobel Prizes, philanthropy, scientific breakthroughs, or lasting art, music, and literature? Versus statistics on homicides, assault, divorce, and illegitimacy. Immigration, when legal, diverse, measured, and often meritocratic, has been the great strength of America, as typified by industrious individuals who chose to abandon their own homeland to risk new lives in a foreign United States. But he says, if America is so flawed and irredeemable, why in fiscal year 2021 are nearly 2 million foreigners now crashing its borders, illegally, en masse, and intent on reaching a supposedly racist nation that is purportedly inferior to those they abandon. According to the ancient brutal bargain, assimilation and integration grant the immigrant as much claim to America's present and past as the native-born. But then shouldn't the antithesis also be true? Shouldn't immigrants at least respect those of the past who created the very country they now so eagerly desire, and who died in awful places from Valley Forge to Bastogne to preserve? Victor Davis concludes by saying never in history has such a mediocre but self-important and ungracious generation owed so much yet expressed so little gratitude to its now dead forebears. Now don't get lost in the idea that everything he's talking about is purely political. If you really want to appreciate those who came before you, start with your own family line. Yeah, you're going to find people who are clearly imperfect. Even the best among your family line are going to have their flaws and imperfections. Learn from them. Become better yourself. Think about the legacy you are leaving for those who will follow in your footsteps. This is The
0: Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right, we are back. I know I spend a lot of time encouraging my listeners to keep a hold of reality. And, and, you know, that's not just some idle thing. Yeah, this is a reality-based show. Everybody else is off there in fantasy land. I mean, you look around you. There are things that we're being told, hey, you have to believe this, even though you can clearly see that it's not true. You know, it's the, the transgender politics right now are probably a great example of this. I don't know if you saw, but, you know, the highest woman, you know, cash winner on Jeopardy is a transgender guy. It's a guy who transitioned into a womanly role. I don't think people understand, you know, that you can you can insist you have to accept this. You have to believe this. And no matter how they beat you over the head, it still doesn't change the reality This person was born a biological male. It's not hateful to acknowledge reality. What's hateful is to to draft and to co-opt people into your fantasy and insist they have to participate. Now, you do understand, I'm not talking about mistreating people because they have a particular, you know, way of seeing themselves. The same way you wouldn't treat someone who is suffering from anorexia or bulimia or something like that, you know, you wouldn't treat them as less... You'd want to love them for who they are. But it doesn't mean you have to participate in their fantasy. All right, moving on here. Keeping your grasp on reality in our current day is tough. But when history is being rewritten and the voices of truth are being silenced, how do you remember what truly happened? Got a great article here from uh, Aiden Tate. This is from The Organic Prepper. And it's, History is being rewritten. Are you prepared? Aidan Tate says history is being rewritten, and the past two years are all the evidence we need of such. Obama's reign proved to be a catalyst for the destruction of America. Now we are seeing the fruits of his efforts. Our republic is no more. We no longer live in the land of the free. And a part of living in a slave state means that the right to free speech has disappeared. For years now, we've witnessed the deplatforming of individuals who fought against the globalists-slash-communists, in 2018, we had U.S. senators saying the only way to protect our democracy was censorship. Now, when your politicians start calling your republic a democracy, he points out, you have a problem. We've covered the global book-burning of alternative, in other words, true news, here before. He says, we've watched the freedom lovers of the world flock to parlor as their own social media posts on other platforms had been banned. And then Parlor was effectively destroyed. But these were all private companies, people cried. Let's not forget we had the White House flagging posts for Facebook to censor. Strange behavior for a private company, is it not? we got D.C. talking about how if you're banned from one social media platform for spreading misinformation, you should be banned from all social media platforms. How much further of a logical step is it to say, no, these people shouldn't be allowed to say anything online at all? And we've seen a bit of this at play here at the Organic Prepper. He says, where we had our ad revenue destroyed by the Global Disinformation Index. That's an organization based in the United Kingdom, which receives funds from government sources. We've discussed here how we've discussed here before how virtually every country on earth, even the U.S., has an internet kill switch, which they can activate at any time to shut down voices of dissent. You can say, well, I'll just use my ham radio, but even not even that's not safe as we've seen evidence of jamming of such in Cuba. The point is this, history is being written, rewritten rather, as truth is being silenced. Globalists are attempting to silence us and there are numerous reasons you should be concerned. It was because of this threat that the organic prepper decided to put all of their content onto a USB drive available for purchase. And here's why. He says we've cataloged historical events extensively here at the Organic Prepper ever since our inception. When something happened of note to American freedom, we kept record of it. For those familiar with the novel 1984, which has seen a huge spike in sales this year, by the way, funny timing, isn't it? The concept of a totalitarian government going back through government hist- or going back through historical records rather to fix them is nothing new. In fact, we've seen this before in real life. One only need take a cursory glance at any book on the Soviet Union to see this in play. Aiden Tate says, personally, I've witnessed several interesting articles of the past two years go the way of the 404 error message when I attempted to return to them for research purposes. 20 years from now, as the fragments of the U.S. squabble amongst themselves, if you want your children to know the truth, an accurate record of what happened will help. And he says, our USB archive can help you do just that. After all, prepping is being demonized. Consider that Facebook is now giving out warnings in case you know someone who's becoming too prepared in reference to preppers. Prepping's being demonized and those who prep are apparently being watched. And Aidan Tate says that should come as no surprise. Preppers by nature remain independent. They don't have to depend on government handouts for food, electricity, water, and the like. And as such, they retain their freedom. Now consider that it is this freedom that is under attack. Totalitarians crave power, and the way you get that power is to destroy your freedom. If you are free, then the tyrant has less ability to force you to bend to his will, so preppers are the enemy. Now with that being said, prepping information could easily disappear from the internet at some point as well. Now he says, perhaps this may seem far-fetched, but don't let normalcy bias cloud your vision. Consider that in 2019, if you had described the world of today, nobody would have believed you. People then would consider today's world too far-fetched. So he says, read the warning signs and tell me, what do you see? Having ready access offline to vital prepping information can not only help you to keep yourself well-stocked with prepper information, but it can better help you to gift that knowledge to your loved ones as well. So that being said, he says, "Check out our USB archive of the organic prepper." I can't remember. I think they're charging a hundred something, maybe hundred and thirty bucks. But it's it's a it's information information that can be used for generations. So maybe it's something you should consider. He says it's a fantastic way to not only keep an accurate historical record of what has transpired, but also to keep yourself in stock of prepping advice for just about any facet of being prepared that you can think of. So he says the sales rapidly drawing to a close. Oh, look at this. Actually, get your USB archive now before the sale ends. Save $100. Put that remainder towards food. He says you're going to need it. 2022 is not looking friendly. Look, I don't know what the coming year holds. There are some indicators that uh, things could get very off track, and I'm looking primarily at some of the economic indicators. And I'm not trying to create fear, so please forgive me if if this makes you, you know, have a little spasm of fear, you know, leap into your heart. Hold tight here. That's not the goal. But I do think it's probably a good idea to to follow. Aiden Tate's advice here, and uh, just are are you squared away? Do you have the necessary resources that you could fall back on? One of the hardest things that I found when my family and I were moving earlier this year was uh, trying to handle all of our books. We gave away so many books. And I'm a book collector. I like to read, but I also, I had to go through and I had to make decisions. Which of these books would be most valuable to us? You can probably guess what the books that I found most valuable were like. Not just strictly on prepping, although I do have some great resources for that, but also books on, you know, how to think more clearly. Classics that that continue to inform and build your mind and your intellect and your character year after year. See, I take it for granted, too. Well, I can always just go over to my computer and fire up a search engine and find whatever it is I need. For now, that's true. But it may not always be the case. And so I want to make sure I have a physical library. Something I can put my hands on when I need to get information. That includes medical information, too. Just a recommendation. You know, you can do with this information as you choose. Seems like it might be a good idea to uh, stock up on knowledge as well as food. This
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde
1: Show. All right, welcome back to the show. If you'd like to subscribe to the show notes, I will happily email you a copy. And I will keep your email sacred, as in I will not farm it out to you know, other advertisers or any other third parties. I'll just send you uh, what I put into the show notes, which I publish every day that I do this program. It's a collection of resources for wrong thinkers. I'm not telling you this is the gospel. You should treat these as tablets that came down from Mount Sinai. Nope. Just my best information to find interesting, relevant credible articles that will give you better understanding of what's going on in the world around us. And it's free of charge. So, you know, I'll give you your money back if you're not satisfied with uh, with what I'm providing you. One of the hardest things that I'm finding as we continue to move forward is maintaining my grip on reality. And it's, it's not because I'm just so weak-minded. I don't know. Who do I believe and what do I believe? I'm just saying that you really have to work at it, and even when you're working at it, there are times where it's very normal to stop and think, "Wow, am I going nuts, or is it, am I really seeing? It that are they? Is the news media, or is are the politicians claiming that this is factual when I can very clearly see this is not the case?" Well, the longer this crisis drags on, the more apparent. That it is that uh, it's, it's the source of nearly unlimited power for authoritarians. Got a great article here from Kit Knightley. This is from offguardian.org. And it says, the COVID narrative is insane and illogical, and maybe that is no accident. Maybe forcing people to believe your lies, even after you admit you're lying, is the purest form of power. And Kit Knightley starts with a quote from George Orwell from 1984. Not merely the validity of experience, but the very existence of external reality was tacitly denied by their philosophy. The heresy of heresies was common sense. Now, Kit Knightley says the COVID pandemic narrative is insane. That is a long established, uh, that's long established at this point. We don't really need to go back into how or why here, just read our back catalog. The rules are meaningless and arbitrary, the messaging contradictory, the very premise nonsensical. Every day some new insanity is launched out into the world, and while many of us just roll our eyes and raise our voices or just laugh, many more accept it, believe it, allow it to continue. Take the situation in Canada right now where the government has enforced a vaccine mandate on healthcare workers, meaning in British Columbia alone, over 3,000 hospital staff were on unpaid leave by November 1st. How have local governments responded to staff shortages? They're asking vaccinated employees who have tested positive for COVID to work. Now, whether or not you believe the test means anything, they notionally do. In the reality they're trying to sell us every day, testing positive means you're carrying a dangerous disease. So they're requesting people allegedly carrying a deadly virus work rather than letting perfectly healthy, unvaccinated people Simply have their jobs back. That does sound a lot like something other than we're just trying to protect public health, and a lot more like we're just trying to show you who's really in charge. Crazy. Actually, as Kit Knightley puts it, this is insanity. But could anything more perfectly illustrate the priorities of those running the game? We already know it's not about a virus. It's not about protecting the health service, and it's not about saving lives. Every day, the people running the pandemic admit as much by their actions and even their words. Rather, it seems to be about enforcing rules that make little to no sense, requiring conformity at the price of reason, drawing arbitrary lines in the sand and demanding people respect them, making people believe facts that are probably untrue. But why? Why is the story of COVID irrational and contradictory? Why are we told on the one hand to be afraid and on the other that there is nothing to be afraid of? Why is the pandemic so completely insane? Now, You could argue that it's simple happenstance, the byproduct of a multi-focused evolving narrative, a story being told by a thousand authors all at once, each concerned with covering their own little patch of agenda. A car with multiple drivers fighting over a single steering wheel. And there's probably some truth to that. But it's also true that control, true control, can only be achieved with a lie. In clinical psychology, one of the diagnostic signs of the psychopath is that they tell elaborate lies compulsively. Many times they will tell a lie even if the truth would be more beneficial. Nobody knows why they do this, but Kit Knightley says, I have a theory and it applies to the swarming little groups of little rat minds running the sewers of power as much as it does to any individual monstrosity. If you want to control people, you need to lie to them, and that's the only way to guarantee that you have power. If you're standing in the road and I yell, Look out! There's a car coming! And you move just as a car whips past, I will never know if you moved because I said so or because there actually was a car. If my interest is in making sure you don't get hurt, this wouldn't matter to me either way. But what if my only true aim is the gratification of watching you do what I say simply because I said it? Well, then I need to scream out warning of a car that does not exist and watch you dodge an imaginary threat. Or indeed, tell you there is no car and watch you get run over. Only by doing this can I see my words mean more to you than perceivable reality. Only then do I know that I'm truly in control. You can never control people with the truth because the truth has an existence outside yourself that cannot be altered or directed. It may be the truth itself that controls people, not you. You can never force people to obey rules that make sense because they may be obeying reason, not your force. True power lies in making people afraid of something that does not exist and making them abandon reason in the name of protecting themselves from the invented threat. To guarantee you have control, you must make people see things that are not there, make people live in a reality you build around them, and force people to follow arbitrary contradictory rules that change day by day. To test their loyalty, their hypnosis, you could even tell them that there's nothing to be afraid of anymore, but they need to follow the rules anyway. Holy cow, is that ever true. Maybe that's the point, says Kit Knightley. Maybe the story isn't supposed to be believable. Maybe the rules aren't supposed to make sense. They're meant to be obeyed. Maybe the more contradictory and illogical the rules and regulations become, the more your compliance is valued. Maybe you can force a person to abandon their judgment in favor of your own. If you can do that, you have total control over their reality. Now, Kit Knightley says, We started with an Orwell quote, so let's end with one too. Power is in tearing human minds to pieces and putting them together again in new shapes of your own choosing. Isn't that what we're seeing now? What we've been seeing since the beginning? People being mind-broken into being afraid of something they told something they told isn't frightening. Following rules they are told are not necessary. Taking medicine they are told does not work. Maybe forcing people to believe your lies, even as you admit you are lying, is the purest expression of power. Now let me take this in a slightly different direction to help illustrate this point, though. Ghislaine Maxwell, that was uh, Jeffrey Epstein's girlfriend, has just been convicted of uh, participating in sex trafficking. And while you know there are people going, oh, ah, wow, you know, I mean, it's a salacious story, right? Anytime you're talking about you know sexual crime, that's always that's always going to appeal to some of the more prurient interests among the people. But so Maxwell has been. Convicted, but you notice there's there's almost no talk. This I mean, this is neatly tied up. Well, justice has been done. Ghislaine Maxwell has been convicted. She's uh, going to go to prison for the rest of her life. Therefore, the matter is settled. Do you notice the conspicuous absence, though, of what about the clients? What about the powerful individuals? The Bill Clintons, the Tom Hanks, the Alan Dershowitzes, the politicians who spent time on Epstein's island. Why are we not hearing about the clients who supposedly were partaking of the wares that uh, Ghislaine Maxwell and uh, hope, and supposedly Jeffrey Epstein were uh, were marketing? I know it seems a little bit odd, doesn't it? We're not allowed to think about those kind of things. We're just supposed to believe, well, you know, she got hers and therefore the matter is settled. Doesn't it make you a little bit curious that uh, if, in fact, there was sex trafficking going on, that there were people, apparently very powerful people, who were the end customers for that trafficking? Look, I'm not trying to gin up a mob. What I'm trying to do is gin up some independent thought because inquiring minds like mine and yours should want to know.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right, welcome back. I kind of hesitated before uh, I chose this, uh, this final article for the final segment of today's show. Just because it's, it's going to make some people uncomfortable. And again, my goal here is never to make you fearful. It's not to make you angry. There's plenty of anger. There's plenty of fear out there. I don't want to add to it. But I do believe that if if you want to be able to stand on your own and really understand the world around you, you're going to have to be brave enough to face some pretty unpleasant facts. And one of the things that I know nobody wants to think about is the prospect of, could we see some kind of economic collapse? Now, I have to confess, I've been I've been watching, I've been waiting, I've been anticipating that, oh, it's coming for probably the better part of the last 25 years. And somehow... You know, our economy has just chugged along on life support. I should say wheezed along on life support throughout that time. But the amount of spending, the amount of uh, interference within the market, it's all coming together in a very unpleasant way, the perfect storm that could set off not just a, a nationwide economic collapse, but a global economic collapse. And I also have this sneaking suspicion, just based on what I've seen people in power do over the last couple of years, that there might be a deliberate element to this. In other words, this may be a controlled demolition. Or it may just be, you know, the jealous uh, ex-girlfriend, burn the house down, our relationship is over, kind of mentality. I don't know. I do have an article here by J.G. Martinez. This is from The Organic Prepper. And it's Lessons from an Underground Economy. And I'm just going to put this out there for you to consider. If we ever found ourselves in an economic collapse, how would you get by? What would be valuable to know? Well, this is a writer from Venezuela, someone who has seen firsthand what economic collapse looks like. So with that in mind, let's see if there are some lessons we can draw from J.G. Martinez's experience. JG Martinez says, How is it possible to survive a nation with inflation rates of 20% a month and 1,700% a year? The answer the underground economy. This is the level of hyperinflation we found ourselves with here in Venezuela. And he says, Spreading the, uh, and considering the spread of inflation worldwide, it would be well worth the prepper's time to glean what we can learn here. Virtually everything you read dictates inflation on this scale, necessitates civil war. Yet Venezuela hasn't seen this. Why not? Why are the streets not being taken by armed civilians? Well, the main reason revolves around 20 years of disarmament and anti-self-defense teachings. But he says, I would argue there's a second reason we haven't delved into a full-on anarchy as well. And that is our underground economy. First point he makes is that underground economies keep People fed. He says, I've lived in four different and fallen South American countries and it's been the underground economy which has kept people going in each case. When I used to work in the Venezuelan oil industry, our salary was taxed heavily, just like everyone else's. As expected, these taxes can quickly make it hard for a family to pay its bills. But the underground economy, it's completely unregulated. I know guys with a hot dog cart who make much more money than engineers down here. And this isn't new. Our world has been like this for many years now. The guy working with the hot dog cart doesn't pay taxes. He doesn't pay rent. And usually, this is now an accepted practice, these street vendors will run a wire from some nearby pole for their music and lights. This man is a member of the underground economy, and he's just one of many. Our stated hot dog vendor is not an isolated case either. He's part of what's keeping this country alive in all probability, It is the men of this underground economy who likely comprise over half of our GDP in Venezuela. J.G. Martinez says more than half the money generated here is the result of men such as our hot dog vendor. Now, of course, much of this money also comes from the cartel and Russian mafia, but the point remains. It is the underground economy which is keeping the people of Venezuela somewhat fed. One thing's for sure. The larger and more bloated government control is, the greater the underground activity. Irregular business is the answer to these controls. It's simply to be expected, especially in Latin American countries. He says, I don't. I believe I don't need to explain why. The government has seized the right to own foreign currency, trapping you in your hyperinflated national fiat currency. Well, a booming Forex black market will spring up, regardless of how hard one attempts to stamp it out. Store shelves are empty. Well, I know a guy who knows a guy who can get you a twenty kilo pack of cornmeal flour for a bit of uh, arepas, a Venezuelan bread. Corruption and trafficking of certain islands of I- certain items, rather, was already a way of life here. These statist thugs just came into the equation to incorporate it further as a part of our lifestyle. How else do you explain that a simple Venezuelan pilot of a former state president can buy himself a two hundred million dollar yacht? Unless this guy works for pleasure and his surname is Onassis, I find that highly suspicious. Need further proof? The rumor is in Caracas that Ferraris, Lamborghinis, and other luxury cars are being brought in for the corrupt elite, and all is paid for by our tax dollars. You know, I see a similar attitude among American politicians. Nothing's too good for us, taxpayers. (laughs) So thanks for forking over all that money that will throw you in jail if you don't give us. Now, J.G. Martinez says, yes, rampant corruption and government overreach is bad, but it doesn't have to hit your family as hard as it could if you've made some preparations beforehand. That's the key, being ahead of the curve. For Venezuelan preppers, getting rid of these insane controls actually worked. It's kept us alive. He says, I sold the inflated money I earned and then bought food and everything else we needed in the black market. It was the only way we could make it. But the one thing I've realized is that there are some underground services which are more profitable than others outside of the truly criminal. So for the prepper considering how he is to survive an underground economy during an economic crisis, one may want to consider the following list of occupations that he's seen perform well in Argentina. First one is fumigation. One of the most attractive businesses you can develop in an underground economy is fumigation. Now, sure, you need a machine and chemicals, and unless you really know what you're doing, you could face problems. But that's something that a lot of people don't want to mess with. The end result? A lot of potential. Local regulations do impact some people down here with this job, however. Second one, he says, is fast food. He says, I'm astonished how extensive this income source is for families all throughout Venezuela. Yes, I know we Venezuelans love hot dogs, hamburgers, swaramas, and the like, but it's simply ridiculous to see the excessive amount of fast food businesses flourishing near his home. He says, I can't figure it out, and neither can anyone else. The best I can figure is this. People like to eat. In the Venezuelan underground economy, almost every business related to food is going to put food on your table as well. And he says, honestly, these people do so well. He says that I'm about to get my own deep fryer just to delve into the market on fried chicken. Here's another part of the underground economy. Machine repairs. It doesn't matter the machine here. If you're skilled enough to repair it, Congrats. You've got the makings of an incredible underground business. Now, he says, I've written about this extensively in the past, but whether it's HVAC or small engines, cars, sewing machines, farm equipment, anything else, you will never be short on business in an underground economy. A prepper should seriously consider becoming knowledgeable in at least some aspect of machine repairs. Also, house repairs. Every single house owner will sooner or later need to repair something that's outside of their range of experience. And he says, I've found here that if your fees are reasonable, you work fast, you do good work, and you arrive on time, a rare combination for a contractor, I know, you'll get multiple jobs from the same customer. He says, I've also discovered that the suburbs seem to have more money in their pockets than do many of the other neighborhoods in Venezuela. If you're going to delve into the world of underground house repairs, that may be a profitable market to dive into. When the normal economy dies, the underground economy thrives. The Venezuelan people have been through a lot. Hyperinflation, famine, rampant construction or corruption rather, and crime were not new to any of it. Yet despite all this, people still had to find a way to keep bread on the table and in their families' tummies. And the underground economy was the way we did it. That's the way it played out here and is continuing to play out. And it will be the way things happen in other collapsing nations as well. The prepper needs to not only be prepared for disaster, but prepared for this form of black market as well. Now, let me tell you why I think this is a very relevant topic, even though you and I may not live in Venezuela. I think it's very possible we're going to see a continued crackdown on the unvaccinated, a continued effort to force them to the margins of society. You cannot enter this business. I mean, this is happening in New York five-year-olds being thrown out of McDonald's because they can't show their vaccine paperwork. Oh, boy. If that's the case, would it not make sense to build a parallel economy? Yes, it's going to be black market. I know with some people's that's oh, it's synonymous with criminal. You might as well be out there selling drugs. No, how about just providing something that creates value for other people and not worrying about seeking permission from the state before you engage in voluntary exchange? I don't know. That sounds a lot better to me than the idea that you're some kind of a pirate out there, you know, plundering other people. Check out the article linked in today's show notes. This
0: is The Brian Hyde Show.